So we finished up a four-part, I believe it was four-part teaching on elders, particularly in preparation for the reconfirmations of Ben and Stephen, and that was a great time if you were not here. Super encouraging to hear um, such things said about our pastors. Um, and, and so we are kind of continuing on in the series, this series that is ecclesiology and kind of, um, that is to say, the doctrine of the church, um, and some of the practical issues that come up in the pastoral epistles. So we're going to moving, be moving through um, how do you handle divisions and quarrels, a big theme in the pastoral epistles, um, care for widows. We're going to return to talk about deacons. Um, then we'll talk about some of the other elements of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, just to revisit a full-orbed ecclesi ecclesiology of the local church. Uh, and so what kind of flows out of, and more or less naturally, a discussion of elders is polity is church polity, which sounds like, you, for a lot of people, a yawn, a big yawn, actually. Um, and, and so I want to justify the question of polity. Polity, just to be clear, refers to how the church is governed, how the church is organized in kind of common parlance, or, as I've said, as I'm going to say in just a second here, who gets to speak who according to the New Testament, is officially authorized to speak for Christ on earth? Who? But who cares about this? Like, what does this even matter? Well, first of all, if, you, if you're familiar with church history, um, a lot of people care about this. Who is authorized to speak on behalf of heaven? And who is authorized to bind consciences? And where authority and power actually lie in the church? It's a big deal. Um, if you understand polity in a certain way, uh, well, let me, re let me rephrase that one. Depending on how you understand polity and where authority lies in the church, all under Christ, everyone in the whole discussion understands that Christ is the ultimate authority. But on earth, you will have a different understanding of what it means to be a member in a church. You'll have a different understanding of what exactly it means, or the process anyways, of what it uh, of church discipline, even. Um, you will have a different understanding of how decision-making is supposed to happen in the church. You'll have a different understanding of how officers are supposed to be put into their respective positions in the church. All of those things are matters that flow out of polity. So you saw, we already gave a peek at our polity with the elders last, uh, in terms of elders last time, and you saw the process for which uh, th that we took to do that. And so what, what we want to do is step back and say, uh, is there a biblical reason to prefer one or the other? And when I say prefer, meaning does the New Testament and the Bible as a whole make any particular polity more biblical or wisest or something like that than others? Or is it all a matter of governmental pragmatism? Is it all a matter of let's do what works, let's take the gospel, let's not compromise our theology, and then past that, let's do what works? Or is it a combination of both? That's what we're going to see. Perhaps one question to get at polity is this When does a small group or a Bible study meeting in someone's house become a church? The answer polity. It is polity. Um, that's not what I'm saying necessarily someone would say is the answer, but that's what it is. Everyone has to answer the question, how does 
a Bible study or a small group, at what point does it turn into a church? And what I'm suggesting is the answer is uh, has something to do with polity or some kind of institutionalization here. Okay, so let me say this. Initially, it's going to rub some people the wrong way, and that's okay because I'm going to clarify it. And it still may rub some people the wrong way, and that's still okay. Uh, but the church is, properly speaking, a political institution. Uh, I, I do not mean a, uh, hence the word polity, by the way, church polity. I do not mean politics having anything to do with Washington, D.C., Democrats, Republicans, anything like that. I mean that you have a commonwealth of believers organized according to certain structures of authority, expectations, accountability, and distinguishing marks. That's what I mean. Okay? Um, that, that just is. An inst some kind of institution, okay? Um, I don't mean formalism. I don't mean structures with no life. I mean that there is clearly an organization, there is authority, there are expectations, there are accountability, and there are a bunch of a group of people who have come together to say this is who we are. That is, properly speaking, something that is political um, in the most general sense of the word, not to be confused again with politics in America or international politics or anything like that. And so, like I said, it's when believers come together on these things in, in particular ways that small groups and Bible studies transform into just a bunch of people meeting together into a local church. This is the factor is what I'm, what I'm suggesting, okay? Now, there are a lot of topics under the umbrella of polity, uh, which fall under the larger doctrine of just ecclesiology in general. But here's the one fundamental question that I want to start off with today, um, and it's the one I just mentioned who possesses the final earthly authority for decision-making in the church, and who possesses final earthly responsibility to promote and guard the work of the church? That's the fundamental question. That is, the th Who is divinely sanctioned and authorized to speak on behalf of the kingdom of God? This has been an enormously important question in church history but one that often plays for reasons that I think we'll see a very peripheral role in evangelical Christianity. It's like some of you, I'm not asking for like a raise of hands or anything, but some of you are like, what do you mean? It's like the, almost the question doesn't make sense probably. Maybe for some of you, you're thinking, well, someone who's a Christian, that's who. I mean, it's almost, it's just vocabulary that it's debates that we're not usually in because we just, we assume some things and we've assumed them for a long time. And I think a lot of what a lot of people have assumed happens to be correct, but we want to understand whether it's biblical or whether we're just doing it because we've done it, which is not acceptable just to do it because you've done it in most cases. Okay. So let me just pause and ask, uh, are there any questions about why this is important or what kind of what this fundamental question is getting at? Because you don't understand why it's important or you don't understand this question. This is going to be a, a yawn, a real, a real yawn for you, yawn fest. Everyone's going to be checking Facebook and sleeping by the end of this. If you don't understand why it's important or the nature of this question. Yes, sir. Oh, a fine question. Are we? Where does the authority lie? Could be. That's part of the question. That is exact. And you will see that people have answered it differently according to that very distinction. Yes, yeah, so the question for the camera was, are we talking about structure, authority, earthly authority in local churches, the body of Christ in general? And the answer is yes, 
Yes, that's what we're talking about. What does the New Testament say about earthly, final earthly authority? Who can speak for the kingdom and do the work of the church, okay? So what I'm going to do is I want to do a guided tour. How have people in the past and currently, not just the past, but the past up to the present, answered this question, okay? There are quite a few answers. They are all very meaningful and very influential. So let's just do a brief survey. This is going to help us get the lay of the land so this discussion makes sense. Because I'm going to, at the end of this, I'm going to transition, not next time to start arguing for a particular view, trying to persuade you from the scriptures of a particular view, and that will only make sense if you understand the lay of the land here, okay? All right, so the first one is, and all these are going to be answers to this question right here. So this question is going to go off the screen in just a second, but remember, all of what we're talking about is going to be attempts to answer this question. First answer to the question is church officers. Church officers are the ones who are divinely sanctioned to speak on behalf of the kingdom of God. Sure, anyone can talk about Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. Anyone can evangelize their coworker, but who has authority to do so? Who has binding authority? Church officers, the Catholic Church has answered very clearly um, with the Pope. The Pope, in conjunction with the teaching magisterium, Ordinary and extraordinary tradition come together. Um, and when the Pope is speaking ex cathedra from the See of Peter on matters of faith and doctrine, he is guarded from error by the Holy Spirit. That is the doctrine of papal infallibility. And so, um, do what? Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. So that is their answer. The Pope is the chief, the supreme pontiff there. In Rome, and, um, and, and so that there's a very large emphasis on tradition, and the, who gets to speak on behalf of the church uh, is not your, like I said, any Catholic can talk to their friend about their religious views, but the people who have actual authority to speak for the church are the church officers, okay? It's the church officers, and that would be, the lowest level of that would be something like a priest, uh, going all the way up to ultimately where, and this is the, that's why I say the Pope, the final authority, the final authority. All the other ones are derivative, final authority, Pope, teaching, magisterium, officers. Second, the Greek and Eastern Orthodox churches have a different answer. Their answer is that authority rests with local bishops, but it's not just elders like we have. Um, it is, they are individually, uh, I'm sorry, I skipped one, that they are appointed they have to be appointed the right way. There's a very specific process for this. And they're appointed uh, and given authority because of apostolic succession. So they believe that when they appoint the uh, uh, elders or bishops of the local Greek and Eastern Orthodox churches, which, by the way, I was shocked. I, I have to confess I did not know this. I thought they had their own more hierarchical structure, and they do give preference to sometimes the church in Constantinople, but they are locally, more or less locally ruled, the Greek and Eastern Orthodox churches. The reason they can do that is they claim apostolic succession when their bishops are appointed. So they appoint them the right way, you got to lay the, there are a couple of steps, you got to like lay your hands on them, like say the right thing, and somehow that means you're descended from the apostles. The apostolic, you're not descended from, but the apostolic authority passes to you. And so that's, that is who is authorized to speak on behalf of the kingdom, okay, in an authoritative way. 
And then the next answer is high church Anglican Episcopalian view. So they have bishops in the Episcopalian uh, high church. Angl- By the way, Episcopalian is essentially um, the, the uh, Americanized Anglican church, right? So, so essentially what that is. Church of England, it's like uh, Church of England, uh, American version of the Church of England, that because of its, has, has leaned left, uh, there was actually a mass exodus from that, and now you have the Anglican Church in North America, but they're all they're they're all related uh, in terms of tradition to one another. So they have individual bishops, individually and collectively, and there's a large hierarchy in the Episcopalian and the Church of England, going all the way up to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and that is the the top dog there in the Anglican Episcopal community communion. Uh, is what they call it, the Anglican Communion. Um, and so they have a hierarchical system where the church officers are the ones who are authorized to speak authoritatively on behalf of the kingdom of God, while individual Christians can say whatever they want, but it doesn't necessarily carry authority, and they don't have necessarily the responsibility for ensuring the work of the church. That falls with these divinely sanctioned people who, in the plan of God, according to these views, are put up for these purposes. Okay? Um so essentially, the authority to speak and act on these views is on behalf uh, for speak and act on behalf of heaven is in the clergy, properly speaking. Um, and that's for a variety of reasons that we'll get to. I think I just want to mention them now. Okay. First, very influential position. Second, on the polar opposite end of the spectrum. Here's this side of the spectrum. Next option is on the polar opposite end. The universal church. Mr. Rex over there's suggestion. That's who has the authority. That's who has the responsibility. The universal church. Um, And what does this look like in practice, though? Um, And who holds these views? Well, the first would be the independent and the fundamentalist churches. I know this is a lot of text. It's not a good PowerPoint best practice, but I want you to be able to read this with me, okay? Because of the priesthood of all believers... The visible expression of the church, which would be individuals collected as congregations, that's the visible expression of the invisible universal church. Because of the priesthood of all believers, the visible expression of the church, um, individuals collected as congregation, has, it says have, that's not how you, that's not, it's very bad English there, have exclusive final authority over and responsibility for the church on earth. Pastors and elders play a specific role in the ministry of the church, but do not have any more official authority than anyone else. So this is the exact opposite. This one says, listen, everyone is united to Christ. We have the priesthood of believers. Um, And so it is the individual Christians, and that's represented visibly by local congregations, who have the authority and the responsibility, and there is no... Uh, anyone in the church who has more authority or a different authority, they just play different roles. The, 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 the uh, church administrator plays a particular role, and a deacon plays a particular role, and a pastor plays a particular role. But everyone has the exact same authority. The authority on this view is at the very bottom, where on this side, the authority was at the very top. Okay? Uh, so who else? You also have many Southern Baptist churches uh, who, uh, <laughs> yeah, so who don't have who don't have elders at all, and rely on deacons to functionally run the church, 
they, they may function authoritatively, but out of pragmatism and not a theology of diaconal authority. So when you go into a Southern Baptist church and the deacons run the church, which is a very super, super common thing, it's not because there's a developed like biblical theology of like diaconal ministry that says that deacons have authority or something like that. It's a matter of tradition and pragmatism. Um, and, and it's their serves as their board of folks who run things. And the pastor, in many cases, is either not a, well, in some cases, at least, at least one I'm aware of, the pastor is not even a member of the church in some cases, but certainly does not have real authority. He might have more practical influence because he has a pulpit, but, but the deacons really are the ones who run the church. And it's, again, just, just an, a matter of pragmatism. At this, uh, on this view, again, ultimate authority and responsibility lies at the very bottom of the individual Christian. Okay? Okay. Uh, what I would suggest is that more discerning, yes. It seems to me with uh, most independent and Southern Baptist churches, they still have an ordination. And at least practically, particularly with independent Southern churches, everybody knows who carries the sin. We've got folks who come out of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Where in their meetings they would have a high group of Christian believers or the Quakers and stuff like that. They don't have an ordained, at least in some cases, ordained. If anybody at any moment may catch the spirit, it would speak word of prophecy or exhortation. So I wonder if that would be even further on the scale. Yeah, I think so. I think when I think when there are certainly I appreciate you saying that because there are certainly shade, certain different shades here of what would count as the authority going all the way down. And certainly in many uh, fundamentalist and independent churches, like Stephen said, uh, you know who carries the stick. But the real question here is, do they carry the stick because they have a theology of authority to carry the stick or because that's just how they've done it? So certainly I don't want to be, I don't want it, uh, anyone to think I'm saying that in independent or fundamentalist churches, um, there, there isn't clear, like every, like someone doesn't, like no one knows who's in charge. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that it, what's the theology that undergirds the being in charge and in, the, in, 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 uh, in authority? In that case, in absence of a theology of authority, you have yeah, that's a good way to say it. In the absence of a theology of authority, you have authoritarianism. So you go in, you know who charge, you know who's in charge, you know who's accused carries the stick, but it doesn't have a theological substratum to hold it up, which ends up being very dangerous and not working very well. Okay? Really good. Anything else there? Yeah, thank you for making that point. Thank you for making that point. Um, oh, Ben, yeah, sorry. Largely tradition. Yeah, largely tradition. There is someone, I guarantee you that there's someone who can give a better answer than that, than I can, but I mean, it's still going to, like, they can give you a better why within the tradition, but it's still going to be, it's still going to be tradition. And, and some pastors are members of Southern Baptist Church. That's why I say some, okay? And I probably should have said some independent and fundamentalist churches too, okay? Um, because... Again, I'm, I'm painting, I have to paint a little bit with a broad brush here, knowing that there are going to be views that are kind of in between the slats. But these are kind of the, 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 the larger. So, yeah, I would say tradition. Okay. Because there's certainly, man, there's not even hardly, there's like three passages about deacons in the whole Bible. 
It's not because of their, you know what I mean? You have the, if, if Acts 6 is the proto-deacon passage, you have that. You have the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. You got Phoebe. That's it. Like everyone's talking about the same three passages. There's just not, there's just not a lot of, of material on uh, the diaconal. So certainly not enough to stand up a church government structure so tradition. Um, okay. So what I would suggest is that more discerning readers, meaning that I disagree with both of those views, to be clear. Um, and I really like, I just want to repeat for the camera one more time. I really like the, the way Stephen said, authoritarianism without a theology. So if you have someone who's an authority with no theology to justify it, you just have authoritarianism. That's a really good way to say it, okay? Um, and I don't think that's biblical. Uh, a lot of people, though, seem to notice that there is a bit of tension in the Scripture, but particularly the New Testament. And that is the attention between officers of the church, and in this case, elders, pastors, um, having authority and having responsibility. But the keys of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 16, and, ex and as they are exercised in Matthew chapter 18, are given to the whole church, not the elders. And yet members are supposed to submit to elders. You remember that in the book of Galatians, Paul says, if, I, if, if, I, if an angel from heaven appears to you, or if I come back and I say something other than what I already said, then it's a false gospel. Now think about that. That is a remarkable amount of responsibility for the church to be able to understand and evaluate and discern the gospel. He's saying if an angel from heaven shows up and says, hey, you got this part of your theology wrong, to say, no, that's a remarkable statement from Paul about the clarity with which he communicated and he was sure that they grasped the core of the gospel, such if he came back and told a different story, they should say, no, you've gone off the rails. The church, the church has that responsibility. Even over, in that case, the apostle Paul in that, in that context. The churches in Galatia are responsible for identifying and holding fast to the gospel, and yet elders are responsible to teach and to judge the word. There's a tension here, okay? Or at least uh, 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 maybe an initial tension. And so recognizing this and trying to listen to both aspects of the priesthood of the believer and the authority of pastors, we have coming out of the Protestant Reformation a third, of course, the, the, this, the, this one right here comes out of the Protestant Reformation as well. It's an unheard of view before that, most likely. Um, but we have a, a, a very, very long stream of Reformed tradition coming out of the Protestant Reformation that says who's in charge of what exactly? Officers through congregational deputizing. Okay, now what's the difference between delegating and deputizing? I'm going to tell you. Delegating means... I am taking the authority that I have, and I'm saying, you take care of this. Okay, you can do this. I'm, I'm giving tasks to other people to do under me. Deputizing means I'm authorizing to someone to speak for me. Um, so I might deputize, all, like a power of attorney is deputizing someone to act for you. Okay, it's not just delegating responsibility. It's more than that. So deputizing is a more robust version of delegating. And so this says, listen... Here is who is responsible 
who has the authority and the responsibility legitimately, it is the elders through having been deputized, having been commissioned to do so from the congregation. They are the authority lies with the people, but they push that to the elders. There is a very large, a very important distinction here between the possession of the authority and the exercise of the authority. So this, there's going to be some text here, but I'm trying to, I want you to get you, wrap your mind around this. A long line of thought locates authority in the whole church, but the exercise of that authority is done by the officers. And the analogy that shows up in the literature all the time is how the power to see lies with the brain, but it's exercised by the eye. Okay? If your eye is in perfectly good working condition, but your brain is, in, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not going to see anything. Right? Your brain has to be working to actually see, but the exercise, how it actually works, it comes in through the eye. So I'm going to look at a couple quotes here. Uh, first from our man Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Uh, how do I restart this thing? Ah, there we are. For whoever comes out of the water of baptism can boast that he is already consecrated priest, bishop, and pope. This is the priesthood of all believers. That's what he's saying, so don't, don't get misled by that. Though it is not seemly that everyone should exercise this office. Okay? Nay, just because we are all like manner priests, no one must put himself forward and undertake without our consent and election to do what is in the power of us all. For what is common to all, no one dare take upon himself without the will and the command of the community. Okay? The officers deputized by the congregation. Thomas Peck, another reformer. The power resides in the body as to its being and in the officers as to its exercise. If you're on the back row, can you read that, by the way? Can you read that? Okay. When I put these PowerPoints together, like on my screen, it's huge. Like it's 24 point font. And when I look up there, I'm like, I hope people can read this. I don't know how to make it any bigger without. Anyway, so. All right. Now I want to read from the Presbyterian, so the PCA. Love the PCA. Grew up in the PCA. A lot of people that love the PCA. I want to read from the Book of Church Order, the PCA, uh, because this is also something that to all, uh, this is essentially what I would suggest is how they're structured as well. The power which Christ has committed to his church vests in the whole body, the rulers and those rules. So it's like, okay, wait, all right. So the, the, the power and authority given to the whole church, constituting a spiritual commonwealth. This power as exercised, there's that distinction between possession and exercise, by the people extends to the choice of those officers whom he has appointed in his church. Okay, continuing on. The exercise of ecclesiastical, that's the church, power, whether joint or several, means taken together or individually, has the divine sanction when, two things, in conformity with the statutes enacted by Christ, the lawgiver, and when put forth by courts or by officers appointed thereunto in his word, which is going to be elders, and they have a, a little bit more authoritative view of deacon because of how ordination happens there. So notice that the exercise of the power has divine sanction when two things happen. It's basically when it's biblical, accords with the words of Christ, and when it's put forth by the courts or the officers appointed. See the first one there. Uh, 
And then finally, from 1.4, the officers of the church by whom all its powers are administered are, according to scriptures, teaching and ruling elders, and then they put on deacons. Like I said, they have a little bit view, a different view because of how they ordain what the, what the deacon actually does, okay? So this is, this is not just some distant thing in church history. This is taken from the Book of Church Order from the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, which is, for those of you who don't know, that's the conservative side of the uh, um, Presbyterian Church, Okay. So notice this, in all these views, authority ascends instead of descends. Okay, and the other ones, authority was up here and it comes down. On, on this, authority st- starts at the bottom and goes up. It's generally identifiable when people refer to officers as representing the congregation. The authority structure in these arrangements mirrors the authority structure of Republican forms of government, meaning not the Republican Party, meaning a republic, um, where legitimate authority comes from the governed governing themselves through representatives. Okay, so this is the old, uh, not well, maybe not quite Thomas Hobbes, but you have, you know, uh, John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, social contract. Where does legitimate political authority come? It comes from the consent of the governed. That's the idea. That's the idea in Locke and Rousseau and social contract theory. Uh, that's why that's why a, a government is legitimate as opposed to someone just stands up and says, all right, I'm the new king, submit to me, Romans 13. Like, no, that's not legitimate. Okay? What makes government legitimate, according to Locke and Rousseau and everyone in that tradition, uh, in, the, in the social contract tradition, is the consent of the governed. And then these people represent these people. They have been, they have been deputized to act and speak on behalf of their constituents. Okay? And so there are two kinds of traditions who hold this view. One is the hierarchical tradition, and that's the Presbyterians and some low church Anglicans. Um, so the, the Presbyterian church is organized. You have a session, and that's local church elders. That would be like uh, Ben, Stephen, and, 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 and me. And then you have the presbytery, and that is kind of the regional collection of people from different sessions. And then you have, in the PCUSA only, you have a synod which is an intermediate step between the Presbytery and the General Assembly. So the General Assembly for the PCA and the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, is the Mac, Mac Daddy, big time, top of the, top of the totem pole. Okay? So it's, that's hierarchical. There's a non-hierarchical view, and that's many Reformed Baptist churches and some churches who would just consider themselves to be non-denominational. Okay? Oftentimes this view is called elder rule because the elders are deputized to act as those who their their authority this is the important point the authority of the elders here um, seems to stem from a relationship of ascending from the people that's the key the authority of the officers how are they authoritative because they derive it from the congregation okay um there are probably some churches of Christ who function this way as well. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know quite enough about it. All right, there is a fourth answer, and it's the one that I'm going to defend. Okay, there is a fourth answer. How am I doing here? Oh, great, this will work. And that is officers and congregations in overlap. Now, this is sometimes called elder-led, congregationally ruled. Okay, so there's going to be a little bit of text here, but I want you to. This is the, the critical difference. Because my guess is a lot of people read the last one. They're like, oh, 
that sounds pretty good. Well, that's pretty. That's close. Pretty close to my view, or something like that. But so just just hear me out on this one because it's, it's an important distinction to make as we answer where does ultimate authority lie. So this view rejects the idea that there is one kind of authority, either held by or delegated to church members or officers. Okay. Instead, it recognizes two different kinds of authority, one for elders, one for members, that do not stand, this is the critical part, in an ascending from or descending to relationship. Okay? So, what does that mean? The whole church, the whole church, officers, elders, and members, exercise the key to the kingdom by identifying and regulating Okay, particularly through the ordinances, the what and who of gospel faithfulness. What is the gospel? It's what Paul tells Galatia. You, you have a grasp on the gospel. Don't let anyone tell you. You are responsible for discerning the true gospel. And who? Who lines up with this? You see this in Matthew chapter 18. Okay, the, 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 faint, the church discipline passage, right? Hey, you're, you, you, your profession of faith, the what, sounds good. You're, the who, though, the personal part, doesn't line up with your profession of faith. The church has, and, the, and of course we're going to get to this, in Matthew chapter 18, the final court of appeal is the person be brought before the church. The church. So the whole church, officers and members, exercise the keys and identify the what and the who of gospel faithfulness. However... The elders have binding authority to lead and instruct the church in its use of the keys through their spirit-given and congregationally affirmed authority to teach. Critical difference from the last view. They give counsel on and make recommendations on matters pertaining to the what and the who of gospel faithfulness. So, so here is the major difference. This view doesn't see that the reason elders have authority is because there was a power source down here, to like put this in like Marvel terms or something. There's some power source up here that gets sucked up and, and embodied up, up here. That's not it. The authority does not come from the consent of the governed. Okay, The authority comes from the Holy Spirit. The authority comes from the Holy Spirit, and it's to do a particular kind of thing, okay? In addition to what they would need to do if they were a merely a member, okay? They have additional responsibilities and a different kind of authority. They have the authority to create moral obligations in the appropriate circumstances, to bind consciences according to the word of Christ that someone else in the church does not have. Okay, so so the, the, the key difference here is there's not just one kind of authority that's bubbling down in the congregation and then gets shot up here, and it's the same stuff just in a consolidated space. It's two different kinds of authority that both come from ultimately the authority of Christ. So the elders have binding authority to lead and instruct through their spirit given. Remember Acts chapter 20, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's where the authority comes from. Um, and they give counsel and make recommendations on uh, matters containing to the what and the who of gospel faithfulness. Now notice you say, well, they don't when they make recommendations. Hold on. But remember, if the congregation is charged with keeping gospel faithfulness and individual Christians have the task in our, in our kingdom of priests and know God, 
the ch a congregation ultimately is responsible, just like that church in Galatia. If that elder stands up there and starts teaching heresy to say, you got to go. You got to go. Okay? The congregation submits to this counsel and recommendation, this teaching. Okay? And I do mean by teaching. I don't mean, let me just give a piece of advice on every single thing a pastor is supposed to say. Um, unless there has biblical grounds for not doing so, in which case it rejects the teaching of the elders and potentially removes them from office. Functionally, then, membership is understood as an office. Boom. That's like the, that was my, my climax. So functionally, on this view, a member is a kind of office, not to be confused with an officer, uh, a deacon, or an elder, but an office in the sense that there are qualifications, you got to be a Christian, and there are responsibilities, primarily maintaining personal and communal holiness and growth while making disciples. The whole church is given the responsibility of guarding the what and the who of the gospel, the keys, while the elders give instructions on how to use the keys and live in the kingdom. Okay, So the distinction between the two authorities is not possessing and then exercising but the but possessing and then leading in the use of the authority that is possessed, which means the exercise of authority is shared by elders and congregations, but they have two different kinds of authority. Okay. So who holds this view besides Tyler? <laughs> because congregationalism isn't hierarchical, any church can be structured by congregationalist. Oh, yes, do you have a question? Yes, yes. Oh, hold on. Hold on. Be there. Yes, here we go. Yes. Yes. Well, different than what? Uh, how is it, how is, so I would say that, so I'd say the distinction is not between possessing and exercising. I don't think the congregation that possesses the authority and the elders exercise it. That's what it's saying is not the case. What it's saying is everyone exercises the authority while elders lead in the use of, lead in a particular way uh, uh, within the church in terms of instructing how to use the keys of the kingdom. Does that make sense? No? Uh, so, um, huh? Sure. Um, in terms of... Yeah, what about the, uh, the team captain on the football team? Uh, he's equally, a, I mean, this is not a perfect example because this isn't like he's not an elder. But I mean, so, but the team captain, get, or the signal caller, if you're, a foot, you know, if you're a football fan, you got a defensive, offensive signal caller. Um, and they are just a member, they are a member of the team. They're out there with everyone else. They wear one jersey. Like if you're, say you're the defensive, middle, middle linebacker, you're calling the defensive plays in response to what the offense is doing. Okay. Uh, you lead. You you have the ability. This is he's the elder figure in this. You have the ability. You're calling plays out there. 
but you're just, you are part of the team though. You're not the coach, right? You are leading in the use of incredible physical force to decimate the other, you know, team, but you are leading in the use of it, but you possess the same, you're made of the same stuff as everyone else. You're not, you don't, there aren't special rules in a sense that, you know, no one can tackle the team captain or, or the signal caller or something like that. You, you play a functional role and you do have a certain kind of authority to call the plays. And it's a different kind of authority than the person has to go tackle the quarterback. Does that make sense? Is that, is that helpful? Okay. We'll talk about it a little bit more. And maybe I'll, clear, maybe I'll come up with a better illustration next time. But the key is that there's two different kinds of uh, authority. Um, and and, and uh, the, both the congregation and the elders who are part of the congregation... All, everyone exercises the authority. The elders have a particular kind of authority within that authority to lead in the use of exercising the authority that everyone has. Yes. Did you have a question? Yeah, I'm sorry. I love it. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, that would be the, the defense saying, hey, dude, you, you've called the wrong play three times in a row. Johnny's going to call a play. I mean, that would be them exercising the, the authority, yeah. In some cases, I mean, just to risk this, you've talked about a coach who loses his team. You heard this, right? Coach who just – now I'm, I know I'm going to confuse someone because now I'm switching the metaphor. Okay? But the authority, it's like, the, it is, you know, the, a coach has the authority objectively, but even functionally sometimes if a coach doesn't coach well and lead well – he can lose the locker room. He, the people aren't actually with him. He, he's, not, he's not leading anyone. He's just taking a hike at that point, okay? So I'll, perhaps I'll have a better illustration next time. But the, the key difference here between this view and the one before is that there are two different kinds of authority, and the authority comes in just two different parallel lanes. It doesn't have an ascending relationship where the elders get their authority from consent and then represent their constituents or something like that, like a representative government. They get it from the Holy Spirit, and their responsibility, as we're going to see, is to preach the word, uh, not to appease particular people in the congregation. Okay, so let me just close with this quote right here. Um, because this will take us into next time. And this is the, some of the misconceptions, and I probably have already created some, about congregationalism. Let me read this. This is by far, this is the gold standard defense of congregationalism, even in the modern period. I don't know if ever a better one's been written. This is just so, so good. It's called Don't Fire Your Church Members, a biblical case for congregationalism. It is not a super accessible book. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's very, very rigorously argued, uh, but it, it is fantastic. Let me just read this as he starts, and then we'll, next time we will get into uh, moving to try to understand what am I talking about here. Let's start with a stereotype of an unhealthy congregational church that sadly is too often rooted in reality. By the way, I've practiced this without trying, trying not to laugh, so I don't ruin it. Um, but here we go. Okay. It's Sunday afternoon. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. All right. A church business meeting has been called. A slump-shouldered pastor stands behind a podium mopping a weary brow with his handkerchief. 
trying desperately to defend his decision to let the church administrator purchase the new photocopier without the congregation's permission. Or maybe he's trying to quell an argument swelling up concerning the color of the new pew cushions. Or maybe he's trying to persuade the congregation that the vacation Bible school program is no longer the best way to pursue evangelism in their aging neighborhood. Even though church members feel very sentimental about it. After all, everyone remembers how little Susie Jordan, a poor neighborhood girl with the non-Christian single mom, professed faith at VBS 21 years ago and is now a church-sponsored missionary in Patagonia. Standing there, the pastor feels the burning ache of knotted muscles across the middle of his back. Perched 20 feet in front of him in the center aisle sits the lonely chrome microphone stand. Member after member moseys up to the microphone to hit, give him a good what for. First, the chairman of the outreach committee, then the lady on the search committee who reminds him that she pushed hard for him as a pastoral candidate. Then the moderately successful banker who always begins his public statements as speaking as a businessman, temperatures rise, some wonders if the church will split, and he wonders if his job is on the line. Okay, so if you're thinking, is congregationalism like, is this a does this mean a democratic free-for-all? What, why are the distinctions that you're making important? Isn't the, what, isn't the kind of it close enough with the, with the third view? My, the burden that is on me is to try to persuade you, no, that there's something worth digging into and something worth, um, because it makes, I, I, what I'm going to argue is it makes membership extremely meaningful and, in, in, and um, gives membership in the church its full due according to the New Testament. And I would suggest that some of these other forms of government effectively in, in the use of exercising the keys in a meaningful way, fires church members. It deputizes officers and then fires the church members. And they just say, yes, sir. Okay? So I, it is on me to defend that. I do not expect anyone to accept that without a biblical defense. That'll be the project over the next one or two sessions as we move along. Thanks for the extra three minutes so I could read that um, quote. Let's, let's close in prayer. God, um, thank you for giving what is hopefully clarity um, and what is hopefully something um, that is interesting and, and, has, and is worth considering thoughtfully. Um, God, we want to be biblical in everything that we do, and, and we want to examine what we do and, and precisely why we do it um, so that we can guard for blind spots, that we can guard for errors, that we can distinguish between what's being done um, in circumstantial wisdom versus what's being done out of biblical requirement. So as, as we, uh, over the next couple sessions, press into a doctrine um, that for a lot of people perhaps um, would be newer ground, um, we pray that you would give grace in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you all. Come ask me your questions. Come ask me your questions about what I said that was confusing, and I will do my best to